This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. This is a show about craft, the writing life, and the themes that are present in a writer's work. Every interview is a journey. I don't really know where our conversation is going to go, but I do know that it's fascinating every time, and one way or another, we seem to get around to what it means to be human and how through craft, that idea is made manifest. Thank you for joining me on this literary pilgrimage into the mind of one writer at a time. My interview today is with Annie Murphy-Paul, author of The Extended Mind, The Power of Thinking Outside the Brain. Popular culture is always telling us how amazing the brain is, you know, how it's the most complex object in the universe and it's extraordinary and it's astonishing. And that's all true. But we also know, each of us knows that our brains let us down all the time. They fail all the time. We'll be back with Annie Murphy-Paul after these essential words. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. The episode you're about to tune into represents eight plus years of dedication and perseverance for producing this show. In addition to conversations that go into depth about a writer's work and obsessions, this show and every interview it features aims to embody the values of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection. I invite you to join me in this journey as a First Draft patron which gives you access to cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and writing tips from my guests. You can become a supporter by going to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash firstdraftwriters. Any amount is welcome, but for $6 a month, you receive thank you gifts on a monthly basis. Plus, when you donate to First Draft, you are joining the community of writers and readers who support conversations like the one you are about to hear. With your donation, you are saying yes to continuing the space of honesty, vulnerability, curiosity, and connection that each show reaches to achieve. You are the scaffolding that holds up this platform that shares the insights and challenges of the writing life. So please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. And let's be honest, there is so much free content out there. In fact, what you are about to listen to is free, but it is not without expense in hard costs and labor to make. Don't get me wrong, producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is an incredible amount of labor involved, time and effort, planning and schedule wrangling across time zones from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Auckland and back again. And it all adds up to the creation of this show and the archive, which has more than 300 episodes you can dive into. I put so much care and effort into this show, and I hope you can tell with every episode. The process begins when I select a book, contact the author, schedule the interview. Then I read the book, take notes, conduct research, have the conversation, and edit the show. 
This takes equipment, organization, more late nights than you can imagine, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. And there is no staff. I am the show from start to finish. I know you may not be in front of a computer right now, so why not write a note on your hand or set the alarm on your phone to remind yourself to donate to First Draft when you get home? Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell everyone you know to subscribe. And thank you for your support and for being here with me today, right now, in this moment, and on to the show. My guest today is Annie Murphy-Paul, an acclaimed science writer whose books include Origins, The Cult of Personality, and The Extended Mind. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, the Boston Globe, Time Magazine, and the Best American Science Writing. She is a graduate of Yale University and the Columbia School of Journalism. The premise of the extended mind is how we not only think outside of the brain, but that it is one of the only ways to make us more intelligent human beings. Paul looks at resources outside our mind that help us think better, including our environments, our bodies, and those around us. The extended mind outlines the research behind these new visions of human ability, exploring the findings of neuroscientists, cognitive scientists, psychologists, and examining the practices of educators, managers, and leaders who are already reaping the benefits of thinking outside the brain. Paul shares stories on the history of how artists, scientists, and authors have used mental extensions to solve problems, make discoveries, and create new works. In The Extended Mind, Paul offers the reader new views on how to use our minds and how to think better. We began the discussion with Annie Murphy-Paul summarizing The Extended Mind and how writing it changed how she thinks. The book is about an idea borrowed from philosophy that says that the mind doesn't stop at the contours of the skull. It actually, our thinking processes actually extend outside the brain into the world, into the body below the neck and into physical space and into our relationships with other people. And it contrasts that extended kind of point of view with what the philosopher Andy Clark calls a brain bound point of view, which is um, the, the notion which is, is, is pervasive in our society that thinking, thinking happens in the brain, that the brain is the locus of thinking and when we think what we're doing is using the brain, period. And I would say that for most of my my life, I was a very brain-bound person. I mean, reading for me was a sort of safe space when I was a child. And it was a place I retreated to, um, that a place where I felt good and I felt in control. And so living in my mind was very, was second nature for me. And I didn't have a really close connection to my feelings or to my body, or I didn't always feel the same comfort with other people or in my own body that I did, you know, when I was sort of living in my, in my mind in this world of this world of words. So the idea that when I encountered the extended, the idea of the extended mind, that idea that actually we are creatures of the world, the way we think incorporates all these outside the brain 
resources, and that we're also connected to each other, that we're not, you know, isolated uh, brains sealed inside our skulls, but actually really um, thinking with each other. That was, um, it was a provocative idea to me, and it was also liberating and exciting. And so it just, it, um, it was not just like another you know, finding that I was writing about um, for a magazine or a newspaper, it was like a, an idea that changed the way I look at the world. And that continues to this day that it really has transformed the way that I think about myself and about life and about human nature that um, it's just a very, it's like a paradigm shattering idea in my, in my view. And it's really um, had an enormous effect on me personally. So the way that you organize the book, which really helps the reader take some of these really big concepts, you took this idea that we think outside of our brain and we use the world to help us think, and then you you encapsulated into thinking with our bodies, thinking with our surroundings, and thinking with our relationships. And within those, it was about sensations, movements, and gestures when we think inside our body. With the surroundings, mm -hmm. it was natural spaces, built spaces, and the space of ideas. And our relationships was thinking with experts, peers, and groups. You did a lot of research. And so you have, I think of you with this pile in front of you and how mm -hmm. you think about organizing mm -hmm. it. So mm -hmm. was that mm -hmm. conceptually clear to you? Or how did you come to that organizational system? I love structure and I love thinking about structure. To me, that's the mo most deeply creative part of, of writing. I mean, it's, it's fun, of course, to um, wordsmith, you know, the final, the final text and, and make sure that your language is beautiful and all that. And I, of course, I enjoy that too, but um, really the, the, the most, as I say, deeply creative part of writing to me is figuring out how to tell the story, how to structure the flow of information. And in this case, arriving at this structure that you just described, which to me seems so intuitive now, it, it I mean, it was not at all intuitive at first and it took a long, long time to get there. And for so long, and I'm talking years, I was um, just sort of, I picture myself sort of floating or bobbing in a sea of information, like trying, trying to make sense of it, organize it, um, put it into a structure for my own sake so that I could understand what it was that I was trying to say and what it was that I was trying to convey to others. And the structure that, um, that the book has now emerged only over time. I, I mean, I, I can't, it was, I certainly was making a conscious effort to think about, well, how do I structure this book? And I tried many different uh, alternatives that I re subsequently rejected before I got to this one. But I do think there's also just a process of emergence that that can take place. You know, you're just immersed in this material day after day, thinking about it all the time. And then um, it slowly starts to become clear to you like, oh yeah, I could kind of um, organize this in, in concentric circles. That's how I was thinking of it. Like you start with the body and then you move to the space in which you're embedded. And then you move to the connections you have with other people. And so I, I you know, I do like structures that are sort of simple um, and that carry meaning in themselves. And to me that sort of um, radiating outward from the brain to the body, to spaces, to people, 
um, made made sense to me on its own, and and it it did it did it did act as a good container for all this um, research that that the book does um, does get into. One of the things you say in the beginning. Um, in, in the introduction is thinking outside the brain means skillfully engaging entities external to our heads, the feelings and movements of our bodies, the physical spaces in which we learn and work and the minds of the other people around us drawing them into our own mental processes. So one example of thinking outside the brain could be just offloading your calendar onto onto Google Calendar, Apple Calendar, mm-hmm. so that you, you have more space in your mind to not worry about where you have to be. And that gets deeper and deeper when you talk about your interactions with nature and how that makes you think and gesture and how that makes you think. And I'm curious as if you got deeper into some of these ideas and concepts, if that changed at all, how you wrote this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually write in the book that I don't think I could have written this book without the lessons that I learned uh, about thinking from writing the book. Um, it was a very kind of meta experience. But yes, I absolutely applied what I was learning from the research in psychology and cognitive science to the process of writing the book. And one of those techniques is is something you just mentioned known as cognitive offloading, which is getting our thoughts out of our heads and onto physical space, whether that's your computer screen or um, a bunch of post-it notes, which is my preferred um, method or a big whiteboard or, you know, just kind of get the key is to is to get the the material out of your head and put it outside your head where you can for one. And there's a bunch of of benefits that follow from doing that. One is that it's stable. You know, it doesn't change once you've put it in your calendar, as opposed to trying to remember it in your head, which where um, you know, we as we know, we can forget things or misremember things. Um, it also create puts a space between you and the information that was not there when you were trying to keep it in your head. And you can actually, you can actually use it differently. You can, you see it differently. I mean, you literally can see it with your eyes and you can say it out loud and hear it with your ears. You have this, what's called what psychologists call a detachment gain because you've put, you get the gain, the advantage that comes from putting some space between you and the ideas. And then finally you can, uh, once those ideas and facts are outside your head, you can manipulate them like they're physical objects or navigate through them. Like they're a three-dimensional landscape, all of both of which are capacities that humans come by very naturally. We evolved to do those things. We didn't evolve necessarily to, to think about abstract concepts. So when we can turn ideas into material objects or into three-dimensional landscapes, we can we have this whole suite of like human capacities that we can now apply to thinking about those ideas that aren't available to us when we when we keep our ideas inside our head. So I really took that idea of cognitive offloading to heart and I used it. Um, very much to map out this book. And it's, it's, you know, it's kind of complex structure, not just the overall structure of the book, but even within each chapter, it's, it's pretty intricately um, structured. So I needed a lot of external help to get that done. One thing you write is the only way to get smarter is thinking outside the brain. And it's kind of a relief. 
Yes, I'm so glad you think of it that way or you read it that way, Mitzi, because I find it liberating as well and a relief as well. Because, uh, you know, one thing I wanted to point out with this book is that popular culture is always telling us how amazing the brain is, you know, how it's the most complex object in the universe and it's extraordinary and it's astonishing. And that's all true. But we also know, each of us knows that our brains let us down all the time. They fail all the time. They, you know, they, um, we're working them as hard as we can, but they still are, um, not always reliable. They don't always do what we want them to do. And so, you know, I, I argue in the book that we actually have reached something like the capacity, like something like the limit of the biological brain, which evolved to do certain, certain things, um, you know, that like the ones we've been talking about that come to it very easily, like um, sensing and moving the body and navigating through physical space and connecting with other people. But so much of what we expect ourselves to do in this modern world is, is something very different. We expect our, our brains to focus for hours at a time on these abstract symbols and um, abstract or counterintuitive ideas and theories. And that's really hard for the brain to do. And that explains the gap between, you know, this idea of the brain is this amazing all-purpose, all-powerful thinking machine, and our experience of it as this sort of fallible, you know, unreliable, um, sometimes unsatisfying kind of organ. Um, so the idea that, well, actually, you know, our brains are doing the best they can with with the, with with, with the, the as the organs that they, the evolved biological organs that they are, and really the way to close the gap between what our brains evolved to do and what we expect them to do these days is to bring in those external resources and to augment the brain's abilities because they, it really, our brains really can't do it on their own. When I was reading this, I felt like it was, it was like a three course meal with, mm. you know, little with three things on my plate at every meal. And I'm like, Oh, this is my favorite mm. meal. No, this is my favorite <laughs> meal, but I have to, say the chapter on the body, which is where you start. Um, mm. And this idea of interoception, which is, you know, being mm. in tune with the internal sensations of your body. I think mm. my body is in, in some ways smarter than my brain. And like my mm. body mm. knows the path I should take. And, you know, the dunce cap really goes to the brain right now. Mm. So I, mm. I'm mm. really interested in, in bodily information and, and sensory intelligence. So I just wanted to to start with interoception, that idea and what maybe struck you because there's a lot in in this section. Yeah, I'm so glad to hear that the chapter on interoception um, resonated for you and with your own recent experience. I mean, as I was saying, I, I also um, have always identified myself with my brain and this research helped me understand the limits of of that approach because um, it helped me understand how much wisdom and knowledge the body has and how, how we miss out on that wisdom and that information and that knowledge when we push aside our bodily cues or we don't pay attention to them or we never learn how to be attuned to them, which is the case for many of us. Um, and so, you know, just to, to, to um, catch 
our listeners up, interoception is it's kind of a technical term that I certainly was not familiar with before I started the research for this book, but it's sort of a fancy word for something we all have experienced, which is like gut feelings, the, the sensations and the feelings that arise from our bodies that don't seem to originate in the brain or in our sort of intellectual um, capacities. And what I learned in the course of writing the chapter on interoception is that you know, as we go through the, our, our, as we go through our everyday lives, we're we're um, we're taking in so much information, so much more than we could possibly consciously process or be aware of. But we are storing that information non-consciously. Um, the sort of patterns and regularities that we see around us in 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 the world around us, and um, and then the way we get access to that non-conscious information is that the body lets us know. It's almost like these, these internal signals, which might be, you know, your you feel butterflies in your stomach or you feel a tightening in your chest or you feel your heart beating faster. That is the body sort of tapping you on the shoulder and saying, there's a situation here you need to attend to. This is maybe something you've encountered before and this is what you did before and that worked or it didn't work. And when we live in our brains and we think that everything that we need to succeed in the world is in our is in our brains in our sort of intellectual cerebral mode um then we miss out on all on that sort of trove of information that the body is is um maintaining for us and so that has been another big change for me that has come about because of the research i did for this book that I have learned how to tune into my body to do that on a regular basis and not to sort of get so caught up in the intellectual activities of, of my daily life, my daily work life, that I'm not aware that all of that time I'm still a body and the body is still, um, it's still there. It's still um, making meaning. It's still sharing its its sort of um its insight and its wisdom with us it's it's always there we just have to learn to pay attention to it which is not something that our culture really encourages us to do it doesn't it, it's like the paradigm from day 1 is like it it touts the your mental facilities but it also in the the very simple language that you have a body immediately mm. separates it like you don't grow mm. up and say mm. you mm. are a body like I mm -hmm. am a body mm -hmm. and I, I just got really curious of how like if we change the paradigm for kids from the very beginning as they learn and develop if they understand more and we talk to them about well, what are you sensing in your body right now that they can yes. connect that because you know, you say in the book that a lot of non-conscious information acquisition, our body remembers things our minds can't. And that goes all the way back right. to our youngest days. Absolutely. Yeah. And you know, what's so interesting is that there are really big individual differences in the ability or the, the, to, to attune to these, um, to be aware of these internal sensations and cues. And scientists are still working on figuring out where these individual differences come from. But one thought is that it, 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 may, it may have a lot to do with the kind of messages that we got from our caregivers as we were growing up. Did you, were you um, allowed to and encouraged to tune into your body and be aware of when you felt hungry, when you felt tired, you know, when you were um, 
when you when you were feeling you know excited or or sad or these these kinds of feelings that can originate in bodily sensations or were you were you encouraged to push that aside and power through you know and and just um and work your brain rather than attend to the body so i mean that's something that has changed my parenting actually as, as you were suggesting mitzi i do encourage my kids to tune into their bodies and be aware that the body is a resource um but you know you're right that even as i'm talking, I hear myself re reifying that, that dualism, you know, like you are one thing and your body is another. It's, I think it's, it's almost hard to imagine given the way we've been programmed culturally to, to think of the body and the mind as separate. It's almost like hard to imagine what it would be like to fully inhabit the body all the time and to feel oneself as rooted in the body all the time. I think that's, um, that's a challenge that's worth thinking about how we could do that. Yeah. And you say in there that people, there were some studies in there to see if people were aware of what was going on in their body. I think on the simplest le level, I think it was, mm -hmm. um, in England, they hooked mm -hmm. people up to, I think it was an EKG and they, they couldn't see when their heart beat, but the, the, the person doing the study could, and they asked them tell me when your heart is beating and that the people right. who knew um, are more able to make use of their non-conscious knowledge in their life. And you had a husband and wife and, and <laughs> I think the husband knew exactly when it beat and his wife didn't. And they didn't yes. know that about each other, but it's yes, that, how they yeah. interpret the world is probably so different just because of that internal knowledge. Exactly. No, I love that story because this was an elderly couple who'd been married for like 50 years. And when they were asked as part of this experiment, you know, please tell me when your heart beat, the husband said, oh, sure. You know, and the, the wife said, what, what, how can I do that? Or, I, you know, how, how on earth would I know when my heart is beating? And the husband turned and looked at the wife and said, don't be so stupid. Of course, you know, when your heart is beating. <laughs> so they've been married for, you know, half a century. And there was this big, big difference in how they, as you were saying, how they experienced their bodies, maybe how they experienced the world. And yet they never talked about it or recognized it or acknowledged it. And I think there's a parallel to that in, in the fact that we we try and we claim to measure to, to down to the point, you know, IQ scores and SAT scores and, and the, these measures of our intellectual ability, but most of us have no idea where we would score, you know, where we would fall on the spectrum of interoceptive awareness. And yet interoceptive awareness is this incredibly important capacity that really affects how we perceive the world and how we interact with the world. And, you know, for that older gentleman, he knew and his wife didn't. And many, many people don't, but they act on that knowledge anyway. You had some mm -hmm. studies in there mm -hmm. from people who are gambling to very, very successful traders on Wall Street. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they would trade before their conscious mind knew something. They felt something in their body, like a sweat or a tingling in their mm -hmm. skin. Mm -hmm. And they would just mm -hmm. trade. And that knowledge was a mm -hmm. nod in their head. Mm hmm. Right. Because all of that, those bodily um, connections, those work much faster than co than conscious thought, which is pretty slow. And, um, you know, this is this will bring a lot of people back to Daniel Kahneman's system one and system two. We have quick, intuitive kinds of responses to the world. And then we have this slow you know, belabored kind of intellectual approach. And um, 
often we're making decisions and making choices based on our bodily um, sensations and cues um, that we're not aware of. And then we only sort of justify them later with our, our big brains and our intellectual rationalizations. But people who are more attuned to the body signals, who are more interoceptively aware, are more in touch with that, you know, that first um, that first cut of, of, of response to the world and can work with that reaction instead of sort of only getting news of it later, you know, in this attenuated, mediated way through the through our intellectual um, gymnastics that we apply to to decisions and choices that are really much more visceral. And mindfulness meditation can help for those people who aren't aware that that's a tool that people can use to help get sort of travel between the mind and body and get them more in tune. Right. Yeah. I mean, lots of people who've, who've um, gone to meditation classes have probably experienced what they call the body scan, which is often an, an activity that be, that starts off a meditation session, which is about settling back into your body, paying attention, a kind of non-judgmental accepting, accepting open-minded, curious kind of attention to the body and all the sensations that are arising um, in the body at that time. And what I like about the body scan, which, you know, I'm, I'm a meditator, I, I do do that in a formal way, but I also have incorporated that kind of check-in with my body in a much briefer form in a way that I can use throughout the day to kind of, um, you know, if I'm getting flustered or, or feeling harried, I can kind of check in and say, okay, what, what am I feeling what is my body feeling right now? And that can be this sort of constantly renewed source of insight and information that um, that you would otherwise be missing out, out on if you lived sort of um, purely on that intellectual surface. So let's take a second. Can we do that? <laughs> and do like a really quick body mm. scan? Mm. Sure. Mm-hmm. And let's go through and and... I'd like to know what you feel and I'll tell you what I feel. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, um, even though I've done a lot of podcasts and I'm feeling very comfortable talking to you, I noticed that I, I do feel sort of a state of physiological arousal that would be different if I were like reading on my couch right now. I feel my heart is, my heart rate is elevated and I do feel that kind of, um, alertness and energy that comes from being a little bit, a little bit nervous or a little bit like, um, ready to, yeah, you feel like you're, you're ready to handle whatever's thrown at you. And that's actually something I write about in the book is that, um, when we are tuning into the physical experiences of our bodies, we can, um, we can reconstruct, you know, or we can have a hand in constructing, what it is, what the emotion is that we're feeling. So when I'm tuned into my bodily sensations themselves and not just thinking, oh, I'm so nervous or, oh, I'm so on edge, but I'm actually down at the level of like what my body is experiencing, then I can say, oh, you know what, this is, I am feeling sort of, you know, in this state of um, arousal or alertness and that is my body getting me ready to handle a challenge. And um, <laughs> I realize I'm getting away from, from the actual bodily sensations right now and into the intellectual stuff, but I'll just return to what I'm feeling. And then you can share with me what you're feeling, Mitzi. I'm, I'm feeling an elevated heart rate and a kind of tingly kind of like um, alertness and awareness of, of like um, being ready 
um, being, being at a state of, of readiness. That's how my body feels. My body feels like from my torso down, it feels pretty relaxed. I'm sitting on my bed actually, but mm. my stomach is a little bit, my stomach is anxious because mm. I have a puppy and I don't know what he's doing in the yard. <laughs> I don't, I get anxious that he'll come in and stop yeah. barking. He has learned to jump over the fence. I don't know if he's running around the neighborhood. So mm. it's like my, I'm, my mind is kind of here, but my stomach is with the puppy. Mm. And mm. Um, mm. I think mm -hmm. my, my shoulders and head are here. I feel just like a little tired just because it's a little early on a Saturday, but yeah. I also feel very um, engaged. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The thing that I think is so cool about tuning into your body is that your body is always a hundred percent of the time in present tense where mm -hmm, mm -hmm, your head mm -hmm can be in the past, in the future, in a fantasy world, like when you check in with your body, it can be in nothing, no other time zone than the now. Right, right. And so it's always there to remind you of that present moment and to ground you and root you in that present moment. It's such an amazing resource that we have that we can always connect with. There's some sections in your book about how writers you know, use the world outside of, outside mm, of their, mm. their, their brain. One, one thing that came, came up early in your book is the relationship of walking and thinking. And mm, mm. one of the questions I ask everybody at the end, and I've asked, you know, almost 330 writers what they do to get away from writing. And mm. it's not, it's not universal, but it is very, very common mm. that people walk. Mm. Mm -hmm. And what, what have you found is the relationship between walking and, and thinking? Yeah, that's very interesting that that's been your experience um, with interviewing writers, Mitzi. And I wonder if um, you're, you know, when you walk, you're getting away from writing. It's it, the activity is so very different from working with words and sitting maybe your computer. Um, but I wonder if it's writing by a different name in a way. I mean, just because um, I find that when I walk, um, ideas that were, that I was wrestling with back at my desk or ideas that weren't sort of co coming together. They just, they just, um, often what I'm looking for appears when I, when I start walking or moving my body. So I wonder if other writers have had that experience, but the reason that might be that that is the case, the reason that um, creativity is often stimulated by bodily movement, which, you know, seems a little bit, um, might seem a little bit counterintuitive, is that, you know, again, the brain didn't evolve to, it, it didn't evolve to read. This is a, a recent cultural invention that all our brains have to be rewired as children to learn how to read um, the written word. And so what our brains did evolve to do is have experiences in the world, you know, to use our bodies and to manipulate objects and to move through space. And so the way we are able to grasp abstract concepts um, is by using metaphors that sort of map those abstract ideas onto uh, our physical embodied experience. And you can see that in our language. It shows up in the language that we use all the time. So if you're working on a piece of writing and you're feeling things aren't going well, 
you know, the, the metaphors that you'll use uh, tend to be ones of stasis and, you know, not lack of movement, like I'm stuck or I'm in a rut. But if things are going well, you might, you often will use metaphors that have to do with, um, with movement, like a, a dynamic kind of movement, like I'm, I'm really, my ideas are flowing right now, or I'm, I'm on a roll. And so what's so interesting about embodied, the field of embodied cognition is that it suggests that although we usually think of the brain, uh, you know, thoughts and intentions originating in the brain, and then, you know, we use those thoughts and intentions to tell the body what to do, to direct it, to do this or that. Um, actually, the causal arrow can be reverse is often reversed. And in fact, the way that we're moving our body affects the way the mind, the way the brain is thinking. So because movement and walking is a kind of loose metaphor for creative creativity, um, you know, where there's um, sort of images flowing past us and we're getting new perspectives as we walk and we're engaged in this kind of dynamic changing um, state when we, when we walk. Um, just that engaging in that activity um, helps us, helps nudge our brains into a more creative state. So there's a bunch of research that suggests that walking and movement more generally is, is associated with creativity. And I think that's why you see throughout the, the ages, and I, I you know give examples going back many centuries of writers and thinkers saying that movement is key to coming up with new thoughts and new ideas. Yeah. And I'm assuming, although I've never gotten dug that deep about their actual walks, that they're walking outside, that they're not walking right, in circles right. around their house. And so right. that, that, that nature also improves mm -hmm. thinking mm -hmm. and, and allows you to think deeper and in more subtle ways. Right. Right. So you get that kind of, um, that double hit. Yeah. There's a quote in the book from um, Monta Montaigne where he says, um, Michelle de Montaigne, who says, um, you know, something like I'm paraphrasing, but something like I always get my best ideas when I'm on my horse and I don't have a pen or anything to write them down on, which like, I love the idea of actually like getting ideas while you're riding a horse. But, um, but yeah, that combination of being outside and moving, um, I think, is a really, really sweet spot for a lot of writers and thinkers in terms of that's where they get their best ideas. Is there anything else you want to say about the role of nature on the brain? Because I, I want to talk about some built environments also, but I don't want to ignore nature. Yeah, one other thing I'd love to add about nature is that nature's capacity to induce in us a sense of awe, you know, this, um, the vastness of nature, the majesty and the grandeur of nature, they take us, that experience takes us out of ourselves and it makes us feel small, but not in a diminishing way, more like in a, oh, I'm just a, a part of the whole kind of way. And what that experience of awe does for us is it shakes up our usual sort of schemas, our usual patterns and filters for seeing the world. And it allows us, it allows kind of space for new schemas, new ways of seeing the world to emerge. And um, just because um, nature is the place where we are so, we are most apt to experience awe. Of course, we can feel awe looking at a, an incredible cathedral, for example, but you know, the, the vastness and the inscrutability of nature is, is 
often what brings on that, that feeling of awe. So I, you know, there's, there's the, there's the nature of your neighborhood walk. And then there's the nature that um, most of us don't get to access quite as often, but, um, but that we can keep in mind in terms of um, that is another kind of brain changing experience that kind of has to come from the outside. We have, we can't get it from looking at our little screens. We have to get it. We have to get the sense of awe from literally being in a place that is bigger and huger and more mysterious than ourselves. The thing that's nice about that concept is because most people work inside is that you can bring some of that inside. There's the concept of biophilia, which is, Mm -hmm. which is bringing plants and light and making an environment on the inside that has views of trees and it Mm -hmm. has been proved in hospital studies people heal better Mm -hmm. it lowers Mm -hmm. your blood pressure it increases your positive mood it helps your short-term memory which improved by 14 percent in some studies and I'm still seeing office buildings built with no windows I know which is such a I mean, it, it just shows you the persistence of the brain bound model, which is like, oh, well, all we need to do is create a box for people to think in, you know, and actually it's, it's, you know, building designers have, have often uh, assumed that eliminating the distractions of the outside world or the glare of natural light, you know, these are actual beliefs that designers and um, building designers and architects have, have had over the past few decades that you need to eliminate all that and create this sort of climate controlled, you know, unchanging place where you can just, just work your brain. And it turns out that is a really terrible space for people to think in. We actually need the, those little variations that we get when we're outdoors or in proximity to the outdoors, the wind sort of, um, rustling the leaves or um, the changing patterns of light as the sun moves across the sky. Those things keep us alert and attentive and also kind of attuned to time passing. You know, there's, it's, it's sort of like this awful purgatory to be in a, an office filled with beige cubicles and, you know, climate control and, and uh, fluorescent light where like you have no connection to nature, to your body, to your um, to the to the wider world, really. And the the idea was that that is the perfect setting for thinking, but it's actually an incredibly impoverished setting for thinking. One of the things in in the built environment that you talk about is that the critical function of a built interior is to give us quiet places to think. And that walls actually came about in some way to reduce the cognitive load of having to keep mm-hmm. track of the activities mm-hmm. of strangers. And that privacy is almost like a primal need for people. It's mm-hmm. not that they mm-hmm. it's not that they're like gambling on the job or something. They just are they can mm-hmm. be more creative it's proven they can Mm -hmm. be more creative Mm -hmm. if someone isn't isn't looking we are Mm -hmm. we are we are evolved to be tuned into social interactions so when we Uh hear it out of our ear we can hear those social interactions and there's also something about a sense of safety that that is Mm -hmm. also I think in our DNA that if if we're just out in the open we just don't feel as comfortable. So I just wanted to ask you about this trend with open offices and what you discovered. Yeah, it was so great to be able to present all this 
social science research showing that the open office is a terrible, terrible thing because those of us who have worked in open offices know this, and yet it's become the dominant you know, format for offices in the US, something like 70 or 80% of workers, this is pre-pandemic, um, work in an open office without, without dividers and without private rooms to work in. And this is just, it's just a disaster um, for doing the kind of complex cognitive work that is expected of us these days. And that's because, you know, this reaches back, Mitzi, to what we were saying about how the brain is this very quirky, idiosyncratic, limited organ that is a product of its biological and its evolutionary history. And we, we get mad at ourselves for being distracted, for not being able to focus, but that's the way we're wired. Um, you know, we are a distraction um, in, in the, the, the environment in which we evolved could mean um, some amazing opportunities or, or, it could, or it could mean a danger, you know, it could mean a threat to our survival. And so we're absolutely wired to pay attention to whatever new things come into our, our environment. And that's not a tendency that we can shut off. Um, so what we need to do is, is use external space, external structures to, to prevent that, um, to sort of save ourselves from our own ingrained in instincts to pay attention to whatever comes into our environment. And that's where walls come in. That's where we need these external structures to protect our our ability to remain immersed in our work because again to spend hours and hours focusing on these abstract concepts and symbols which is what many of our what our work looks like for many of us these days um is is unnatural for the brain it's hard for the brain to do and so this is another example where we need external resources to help to help the brain out you know and that's exactly what's missing in the open office where we're tossed into this environment with all these stimuli, all these um, distractions of the kind that that, um, that grab our attention most readily, you know, um, principally these social distractions because we're especially um, attuned to social interactions. And when people are talking all around us, that is exactly, that's using up exactly the same kind of um, mental, um, capacity that we need to focus on on our the words that we're working on in our work and so it's really a prescription for for distraction for a dissatisfying work experience and um i i hope that that message you know as as we're sort of reinventing the workplace or the reinventing the office post pandemic or rethinking what that should look like i think um this research about the drawbacks of the open office should be front and center and on the minds of people who are planning what our offices will look like. I think something in there too, you mentioned was this idea of collaboration and that the open office in some part came, came about mm -hmm. based on that it collaboration will be better, but studies show that it's actually worse, whether it's because there's a privacy element missing so you're afraid to fail mm -hmm. or other people aren't listening or that you're actually more intimidated because of of the lack of freedom to say whatever you want to get to a really great conclusion but there might have been more that you had said about collaboration yeah i mean the idea behind the open office was like oh well you know spontaneous conversations and collisions between people that's where like our, our you know serendipitous 
ideas come from. And there's something to that. I mean, um, there's interesting research suggesting that the farther away people are located in a, in a building or in an office, the less likely they are to encounter each other, the less likely they are to have those impromptu conversations that can spark new ideas. But that doesn't mean that we need to constantly be exposed to other people and what they're doing. It's a really, it's a really, it's a, a deep kind of misunderstanding that has structured, you know, the way most American offices look. Um, so what we actually need is time to mingle, collaborate, you know, um, interact with other people, and time other time where other times where we're on our own in that private kind of secluded space where we can do our thinking. And the word for this um, coined by Ethan Bernstein at Harvard Business School is intermittent collaboration. That what we need is not to be with other people all the time, but it's also not good for us to be isolated and on our own all the time. What we need is a kind of oscillation back and forth. And so we need spaces, built spaces that can support that kind of activity. Another thing in in the book towards the end when you're talking about thinking with peers, thinking with experts and thinking with groups that really struck me had to do with behavioral synchrony um, mm, that mm. that when you have people who are doing the same thing at the same time, they think better. And when they do something in harmony, they feel better about one another and feel mm-hmm. enlarged and empowered Mm-hmm. And I'd love to know a little bit about what you learned about that. There was a really cool thing going on in Japan. Yeah, yeah. I opened a section on synchronous movement with um, this calisthenics routine that has been practiced by, you know, many, many Japanese people um, for decades now. And, and pe- you know, people start doing it as school children and they know it by heart and it's, it's actually broadcast on the radio. And so people will gather at construction sites or public parks or in schools or in offices and do this little exercise routine, which is set to music together and they're all moving synchronously as one. And I thought that was a really beautiful example of the power of synchronous movement. And, you know, I'll I'll admit, I, this is something I was skeptical of because I, like many freelance writers, I'm sort of resolutely, (laughs) uh, you know, I do what I do because I like being by myself. I don't necessarily, I'm not a joiner. I don't like to be part of a group necessarily, but I was really persuaded by and often really moved by the research showing that moving together with other people is this evolutionarily developed kind of um, hack of our nervous system. It actually makes us feel like we are in some way um, one with, with those other people. It's like our bodies are moving in the same way at the same time. Maybe we're actually all like one creature, one huge creature, you know, and um, it does things to our cognition that are kind of surprising. You know, it, it allows when we move together, we actually are better able to think together, to cooperate and collaborate. And so it's really, you know, to me, there there can be something creepy about, you know, group activities and people moving or speaking together as one. But, you know, then again, the challenges of our world are so great that I don't think any individuals on their own can solve them. We're going to have to figure out how to work together as a, as in groups more effectively. And that's not something we're necessarily taught in our very individualistic culture, but I think it's, it could be 
a part of our our education and our workplace training so that it's a skill that we have that we can employ when we need to use it. Was there anything in in these, and I, I remember a few, is there anything mm-hmm. that stands out for you in your research that either changed how you write or you think is really helpful for writers? Hmm. There's a section in the chapter about thinking with experts that's about the importance of imitation and emulation. And this was fascinating to me because I came into it with that same attitude towards imitation that is prevalent in our culture, which is, you know, imitation is lazy. It's a cop-out. It's sort of morally suspect. It's plagiarism. You know, I mean, we have a very negative attitude towards imitation And I was, as opposed to innovation, which we celebrate um, and we really um, elevate as this, as this, as the highest of kind of human activities. And I was so surprised to learn that for centuries, um, the educational system in many countries was based on imitation, on the idea that the way you learn to um, the way you master a craft is by studying the masters and the people who who know what they're doing and imitate them, see what they're doing from the inside, take it apart, put it back together. And of course, many writers have already already do this in an informal way. You know, we learn our best teachers are the writers that we read and we and we study what they what they've done and how they did it. And but there's not really a um the, well, there's not the social acceptance of imitation that that um, that I, I, I wish I wish we had. And there's not a sort of formal program of um, incorporating imitation and emulation into our into our um, educational system or into our workplace training because we are so obsessed with innovation. And I, I really, um, again, I, it was almost a relief to to come to understand that imitation is how humans learn quite naturally. I mean, it's how, that's how we evolved to learn. And to know that we don't have to do it all ourselves. We don't have to reinvent the wheel. We can take our cues from people who have figured this out and learn from them. Like, I really love that idea. And that's affected my own approach to studying and learning from the writers that I admire. Can you share a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yes. Uh, The passage I chose is from Andy Clark, who's a philosopher, he's one of the originators of the theory of the extended mind. And he's maybe an unusual choice because he is a philosopher, he's an academic, but he writes in such a clever and entertaining and mind-bending way that I he's he's really inspired and influenced me. Um, so the the passage I have here is the first from the first page of a book of his called uh, Natural Born Cyborgs. Let me get the subtitle, Natural Born Cyborgs, Minds, Technologies, and the Future of Human Intelligence. And I'll just read the, the first paragraph here, which is very arresting, I think. He writes, my body is an electronic virgin. I incorporate no silicon chips, no ret- retinal or cochlear implants, no pacemaker. I don't even wear glasses, although I do wear clothes but I'm slowly becoming more and more of a cyborg. So are you pretty soon and still without the need for wires, surgery, or bodily alterations. We shall all be kin to the Terminator, to Eve eight, to cable, just fill in your favorite fictional cyborg. Perhaps we already are 
For we shall be cyborgs, not in the merely superficial sense of combining flesh and wires, but in the more profound sense of being human technology symbionts, thinking and reasoning systems whose minds and selves are spread across biological brain and non-biological circuitry. This book is the story of that transition and of its roots in some of the most basic and characteristic facts about human nature. For human beings, I want to convince you, are natural born cyborgs. So <laughs> I, I mean, I, as you can probably tell, I enjoyed just reading that paragraph. It's so, it's, it, you know, it's about heavy stuff. It's about serious stuff, but it has a lightness about it that, and a kind of playfulness and a humor that I really love and a playing with language. And, um, and also it has, it does what I most value about writing, which is it like totally changes the way you look at yourself in the world. You know, this idea that we're not only cyborgs, but we're natural born cyborgs. Like that's the nature of what it means to be human is to incorporate all these outside influences and resources. Like that just to me is an amazing accomplishment. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Yes. So um, I'll read the last two paragraphs of my of my own book, um, The Extended Mind. Um, <clears throat> so this is the last part of the conclusion. In a famous thought exper experiment, the contemporary philosopher John Rawls imagined designing the ideal society, but doing so from behind a veil of ignorance regarding how the designers themselves would fare in the new world they are creating. While engaged in deciding how society's affluence and opportunities are to be distributed, Rawls writes, no one knows his place in society, his class position or social status, nor does anyone know his fortune in the distribution of natural assets and abilities, his intelligence, strength, and the like. End quote. Intriguing though it is to contemplate, Rawls's scenario has always been hard to enter into fully so closely are we identified with what we take to be our natural assets and abilities, our intelligence foremost among them. The theory of the extended mind is a tool with which we might begin to pry loose this instinctive identification. Unlike innate intelligence, which we imagine to be an inseparable part of who we are, access to mental extensions is more readily understood as a matter of chance or luck. This radically new conceptual theory harbors within it an old and humble moral sentiment. There, but for the grace of God, go I. Acknowledging the reality of the extended mind might well lead us to embrace the extended heart. So that was tricky because, you know, <laughs> this is coming at the end of a long, very dense and intricate and involved argument. And I wanted to... I didn't want to sum it up in some kind of pat way. You know, I had a really wonderful editor. He's now a book editor, but for a long time, he was a magazine editor, a guy named Alex Starr, who told me once that ideally the last paragraph of an article should encompass, you know, reflect what's come before, but then turn half a turn in a new direction and kind of Get, leave the reader with something to think about that's that's new. Like bring them to a place where they weren't they they weren't when they started the article. And um, I think so often we writers have a desire. You know, we've been told like 
tell them and then tell them what you told them, you know, that kind of like, you know, make sure they make sure they get the message, make sure they get the lesson of what you've written. And I loved the idea of that Alex gave me of like, no, actually this shouldn't be a closing down, you know, it should be an opening up like, okay, we've been on this journey together in this article or this book. And now let me open as my final act, I'll kind of open this last vista for you and we'll look off into that together. And so that's how I wanted that, that paragraph to function in my own book that like, okay, we've just been rethinking about, we've just been through this rethinking together of what intelligence is and what human beings are. And um, maybe that has moral implications. Maybe that has implications for how we think of each other in society, you know, and I had, that wasn't something that I'd really gotten into very much in the book itself, but it seemed like a great way to kind of a great place to leave the reader as with like one more thing to chew on. Where do you write? <laughs> I'll admit I, I cannot write unless my feet are up. <laughs> so that means I write on my bed or I write on my couch or I write on, I have like a chaise lounge in my um, living room. Um, and I actually noticed that when I'm feeling more anxious, like when things aren't going well with my writing that I retreat to my bed and I write there. And when I'm feeling more confident and like, you know, like things are going well, then I can venture down into the living room. <laughs> so I guess I really do find that physical space um, influences how I think. Um, but I, I have never really been able to write at a desk. What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I love writing, but it is, it's so intense and it involves such incredible concentration and immersion. So when I'm not writing and I want to completely have a kind of change of scene and change of activity from writing, I love cooking, um, which is very convenient because, you know, you'll put in a day of writing and then it's time to make dinner. <laughs> and there's something about, um, the very physical work of chopping and cooking and the very um, visceral and embodied and, you know, you're dealing with, with um, foods and, um, um, you know, the, the, these very material aspects of the world, as opposed to these ethereal kind of ideas that I've been wrestling with all day. Um, and then, you know, when you're finished, you have a meal to eat and to share with others. So cooking is my very favorite way to get away from writing. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? So I'm fortunate to have, I've been a freelancer for many years, but I'm fortunate to have a group of um, writer friends. We have, I actually have a writer's group that meets once once a month, but we don't read each other's stuff just because that um, that's not the form this book, this group takes. It's much more of a, almost like a group therapy slash mutual aid, aid organization. Um, we help each other with the questions that come up in the, in the, course of, of having a writing life, but, um, and we don't, we don't read each other's stuff or workshop each other's stuff, but there are people within that group who I will privately contact and say, I have this chapter, would you mind reading it? Or would you, would you be willing to give me feedback? And, um, you know, being a freelancer for so many years, these people, these, these friends are my colleagues. Um, and, they are the ones that rather than really rather than an editor or an agent or something, um, it's really my my peers, my writer compadres, I think, who would who really are best able to understand what I'm trying to do and to help me when I'm not quite pulling it off. How have you dealt with rejection? 
<laughs> well, rejection, God, it's such a universal and persistent part of a writer's life. Um, I honestly, I, I must have a thick skin at this point after freelancing for 25 years, 20, 20 plus years. Um, not that it doesn't hurt, but I've come to realize, I've come to take it less personally, I would say that you don't know what's in an editor's mind. You don't know what else they have, you know, in the hopper that they, that is maybe similar to what you've proposed. And, and also, you know, your writing main is not for everybody. I realize that my writing tends to be really, it's, it is really dense with ideas. That's what excites me. And um, I just want like a constant stream of new ideas to think about and not, not everybody wants that, you know? Um, so I've come to feel like I've come to deal with rejection in a pretty um, sanguine way in the sense that my writing's not for everybody. I don't know what was in an editor's mind or, or on their desk when they saw, you know, my pitch or whatever. Um, but there's always another editor. There's always another outlet. Um, I, I'm pretty pretty um I feel like I deal with it pretty constructively at this point and what is your favorite word my favorite word yeah I thought about this for a while because in a way I wanted a really especially beautiful like aesthetically beautiful word but in the end I settled on a word that is just really meaningful me to me and that I end up using a lot which is engaging um that's like a very a term of very high praise for me if if a piece of writing is engaging or an experience or some other cultural product is, is engaging. That's, um, that's what I'm looking for. That's what I get out of writing that I love. That's what I hope my writing is, you know, to be engaged with the world in this passionate kind of visceral, energetic way. Like that's the state that I'm looking for. And so engaging, I chose as my favorite word. Well, thank you so much for taking the time and, and sharing your, your thoughts in this book with, with us in the world. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Missy. This has been such a pleasure. I love talking about writing. If you like today's show with Annie Murphy-Paul, author of The Extended Mind, check out my interview with David Quammen on his nonfiction book, The Tangled Tree. We discussed what Darwin missed in his theory of evolution how viral infections influenced human evolution, and the human flavor of scientific stories. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive of more than 315 interviews at firstdraftwriters.com. You can stay tuned to First Draft on social media, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft A-D-O-W. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including access to pitch-free, ad-free content, as well as cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final show, writing tips for my guests, books, and more. Join me as I reach for honesty, vulnerability, connection, curiosity, and insights on craft with each episode. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up in the next few months on First Draft, interviews with Rebecca Solnit, Evie Wild, EJ Levy, and Charlotte Wood. I want to send out a huge thank you to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. 
The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin. Thank you for listening.